Happy Mother's Day, everybody. What a joy it is for us to celebrate the moms in our lives. As soon as you're done with worship today, hope that you call, write, email, text, shower with gifts and with praise to the women who raised us, cared for us, loved us, nurtured us. Uh, so grateful for the gift of motherhood and the reflection of that, that that is to the love and the unconditional grace of Almighty God. And so we're grateful for all of you moms who are watching and participating today. And I'm excited for us to get to share this particular message on Mother's Day. We're in the midst of a series of messages where we're talking about everyday holy. And in everyday holy, we're talking about the specifics of how God meets us with his sacredness in our everyday lives. And so we're talking about sacred people, sacred spaces, sacred rhythm, sacred reflection, sacred wisdom, sacred art, and sacred journeys. Today, we're talking about sacred wisdom. How appropriate is that on Mother's Day, that we're talking about the wisdom that we receive? And I wanna to begin today by uh, sharing with you, when I started out in pastoral ministry, part of the portfolio of my responsibilities and tasks was to work at this university. This is Rice University. It's located in the heart of Houston, Texas, in the shadow of the largest medical center in the world. It's a, it's a great university and had a variety of things that I would do, like in Bible studies. But as is with all ministry, uh, the core of the ministry is relational ministry. And so I was meeting one-on-one -on -one with students. And when I wasn't directing a class of college students, most of the one-on-one -on -one discussions centered around two different questions. They centered around like, what am I gonna do with the rest of my life? What is my career? What is my vocation? What am, what am I supposed to do with that? And the second question that people would often invariably ask was relational questions. Like, is this the one I'm supposed to marry? Is this the one that I'm supposed to spend the rest of my life with? And so I felt like I was kind of a vocational and relational counselor as I was working in college ministry. And what's interesting to me is that the question that's behind all of those questions is this. It is, it's what's God's will for my life? Uh, people wanted to know how they could discern the will of God. And so Today, we're going to tackle that subject. Um, I need to tell you that today's kind of message is going to be a little different in how it's configured. We're going to start theologically, then we're going to talk biblically, and we're going to spend a lot of time on kind of how to apply or practice what we're talking about today. So let's start talking by theology. When I was in college and I started to ask these questions, my dad gave me a book. Now, uh, it was not a Christian living book. It was this book. It was called Decision Making and the Will of God, a Biblical Alternative to the Traditional View. This book was written in 1980. It is 500 pages long. And so it was in the early 90s that I was reading this book. And uh, it was the first theological book that I read. I had read some other Christian living literature, but never something that was kind of dense. And I'm not telling you to go run out and buy this because it's, it's pretty thick in terms of understanding it. But when I dove into it, it absolutely changed the way that I thought about God's will for the rest of my life. And I'm about to give you the Cliff Notes version of that right now. So when we talk about the will of God, what exactly is it that we're talking about? Because there's kind of three different ways that you might understand when the Bible or someone talks about the will of God. Is it God's sovereign will for creation? 
kind of God's total will for the universe? Is it God's moral will? In other words, his, his uh, understanding of what is right and what is wrong? Or are we talking about God's personal or individual will for my life? And so let me see if I can help you understand these three different things kind of on a diagram. Um, there's the, you know, the totality of God's will over all of creation. And then there's God's moral will. And then the question is, is, is God's personal will just this kind of little dot in the midst of all that we can do with right and wrong? I actually think the diagram goes more like this. I think it's about God's sovereign will and God's moral will. And yet there is this large sandbox or area of freedom and responsibility. You know, when I've talked with people about this, I, I hear people use phrases like, I want to stay right at the center of God's will, as if God's will is this tiny little area of real estate or geography. And man, if you deviate from that a little bit, you, you're going to be outside God's will. I remember a friend who, who had the difficult challenge of choosing between two graduate school programs that were both really good. And the question that he kept saying is, I... I want to make sure that I'm doing God's will. And I kept thinking to myself, I think you can honor God at either one of those schools. So let's talk a little bit about how this theology comes to us in the form of a couple of clear statements. This is how the authors of that decision-making in the will of God put it. This is how they summarize it. First, it's called the way of wisdom, where God commands we must obey. Where there is no command, God gives us freedom and responsibility to choose. Thirdly, where there is no command, God gives us wisdom to choose. And then lastly, when we have chosen what is moral and wise, we must trust the sovereign God to work out all the details for good. Helps us to understand as we're talking about the will of God, how all of these different pieces kind of fit into play. So let's think about this all the way back at the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, we are told that we are created in the image of God, that we are to reflect God's character, and that a part of that is that we are, each and every one of us, given a dominion. We're given a, a region or an area of our will to be done here on earth. And so in the midst of that, you and I are called to exercise that wise stewardship and judgment in the freedom in the area that God has given to us. And then we see this in Genesis chapter 2. Just chapter 2, it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are what? You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, there's a lot of confusion about what is that tree and the one prohibition. The shorthand understanding from that is for them to be able to determine right and wrong for themselves. So, in other words, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil wasn't just like one forbidden fruit. It was saying we get to determine for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. That's a rejection of God's will as the moral will. I get to be the God of what is right and what is wrong. So what we see in that scripture is probably best able for me to kind of paint with a silly little uh, made up parable. Imagine that 
Adam and Eve, it's towards the end of the day, and Adam comes in, he's super tired, and uh, he's like, whew, Eve, man, I had to name a lot of animals today, and I nearly, I mean, I was out of gas when, when I called that thing the aardvark, man, I just, I, I need a little bit of break, and I'm absolutely starving. And Eve says, well, I know you've had a long day. I'd be glad to fix dinner for us. Why don't you go out and collect some fruit and then I'll come and I'll kind of make it into a fruit salad. Adam's like, total deal. Goes out to go kind of pick some of the fruit and he comes back empty handed. And Eve's like, wait, I thought you were going to go get some fruit. And Adam came in and he's, and he's just like, you know what, Eve, I, I, I didn't know what fruit to pick. Uh, I, I want to stay in God's will. And I don't know if it's God's will for us to have apples tonight or for us to have, you know, oranges for us to have tonight. Maybe we're supposed to have bananas. How are we supposed to determine these things? And Eve says, well, isn't it true that God gave us freedom for all of those things in the garden? And Adam's like, you know, you're right. God did just give us freedom. So we could eat bananas tonight. We could eat oranges tomorrow night. And Adam goes back in and brings the fruit, and they're able to actually have their meal together. You know, as silly as that parable might be, it's an understanding of going all the way back to the beginning and how God told them that they had all of this freedom. And sometimes we really don't believe that we have that kind of freedom. I love how St. Augustine put it. He put it like this. He said, love God and do whatever you want. Now, we have to understand this biblically in context, that loving God isn't meant like, hey, you get to go to church, say a prayer, and then get to go do whatever you want. And remember that Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So it doesn't, it's not a blank check for any desire that you and I might have. What Augustine was saying is that when you love God, when you are in a relationship with the living God, that you and his will start to merge together into one. And that God has invited you into the glorious freedom that is his will. And so what does this actually look like? This is the summary statement from that book that I told you that was 500 pages long. It's a little shorter in sermon form, it's this. Instead of wondering, how do I find the will of God? A better question to pursue is, how do I make good decisions? How can you and I become wise, faithful, good stewards of what God has entrusted to each and every one of us? You know, I think sometimes when we think about the will of God, we just do so in a way where um, we kind of are off, offloading the responsibility and the freedom that we've been given with. And so I want to put that mantle on you to say that God's will is not small, it's big. And it's within his moral will and that you and I have the chance now to make some wise and faithful and good decisions on his behalf. So for the rest of this message, I actually want to spend some time in the practicality of that. And I want to share with you, because as a pastor, I get a front row seat to a lot of lives, some of the common mistakes that I see with decision making. So we're going to talk about seven quick mistakes that people make with regard to making wise decisions. And the first one is this. First one is what I call the outcome bias. And what we mean by that is we think that good decisions 
always mean good results. There's a social scientist by the name of Annie Duke who's written a book on decision making. And the way that she talks about it is, is that it's called resulting, that you and I are the kind of people that are biased towards that, man, if you make a good decision, it always leads to a good result. When the reality is, this is far more complicated than that. Let me give you an example. An example of that might mean that uh, you run through a red light, but nothing happened to you. You didn't get a ticket. You didn't get into an accident. That's an example of a bad decision that ended up with a good result. But say one day you're going through a green light and you get in an accident. That was a good decision that actually ended up in a bad result. In kind of a sillier vein, when I'm playing the game of golf, every once in a while I feel like I hit what is a really good golf shot, but it you know, bounces one way and bounces another and ends up at a bunker or a trap of out of bounds or something along those lines. Uh, it still was a good shot. It just didn't have a great result. And that is true for us in life itself. You can be making the right decisions and not have them have the right outcomes for what you wanted. And so don't immediately think in terms of a binary nature of God's will. I know a lot of people, if something doesn't turn out the way that they expected, they're like, well, it must not have been God's will. That is not the way it works. And life is far more complicated and nuanced than that. That's mistake number one. Mistake number two is this. It's called the destiny mistake. And what we think with the destiny mistake is kind of this fatalism that everything hangs on this one decision. When I, was, um, when I was in graduate school, there was a movie that came out a long time ago that was, that was called Sliding Doors. And in this movie starring Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, the whole movie was about um, her life diverging on whether or not she made it to that subway train on time or not. So it played out two different timelines. One timeline of her life is if she made the train and the other timeline as if she didn't make the train, and how absolutely up and down and backwards and inside out her life was just from the simple shift of that one decision. I remember watching this movie, and it drove me crazy. It drove me crazy because I kept thinking about that they were making such a big deal out of this one decision and talking about all the implications, when in reality... um, it didn't necessarily have to pan out the way that the movie, go or the movie makers had made it. I can give you an example of that from uh, recently I was meeting with a family and um, the Congress family, we're, we're talking a lot about college. We have a sophomore and junior this year in high school and we're looking large at the, uh, the looming decision that college is. And uh, so this couple, uh, they're on the other side of that. They've been through that. And I was asking them for wisdom of like, you know, you've got three children, they're way on the other side of college. Tell me about what, what you thought. And I love the way that they put it. They said this, they said, we think the decision of where you go to college is less important than what you do with it. And boy, that just seemed to be a really wise word for a family that was just about to go through that. We often inflate certain decisions with so much importance when the reality is, is all that that decision does is open up a variety of different possibilities. I'm not saying that the decision about where you go to college is inconsequential. 
What I am saying is it's just one of many decisions, and it's not near as important as the myriad of decisions, the multitude of decisions that you will make on the other side of that decision. I believe that I could have gone to lots of different colleges and had a variety of different experiences and still stay within the will of God. Don't get this fatalistic perspective of inside his moral will that one is good and is in God's will and that the other one is bad. I think God has given you a freedom and an area to be able to move and to decide. The third mistake is this. I call it the alternate reality mistake. It's the mistake where we say, if only, if only. It's the mistake that I see all the time where people have a tendency to blame their unhappiness or what's wrong in their lives based on their circumstances. That what they really need in order to be healthier, happier, better is that they need to be able to change their circumstances. They need to change their circumstances with their relationship or they need to change their circumstances at work or they need to change their circumstances at home or where they live or whatever it is. It's, this, it's the chasing of the rabbit of if we will get this one change, then my life will be better. One of my professors along the way in life was a a just incredible man that you hear me talk about often if you're a part of the Peachtree family. His name's Dallas Willard, and he says this. He says, God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. And if we faithlessly discard situation after situation, moment after moment as not being right, we will simply have no place to receive his kingdom in our life. God has yet to bless anyone except for where they are. Now, this is, this is not a statement that can be taken out of context to say that if you are in a horrible, bad, abusive, terrible situation that you shouldn't rectify it if you can. What it does mean is that many of us flit from circumstance to circumstance thinking that circumstances is the solution to all of our problems. The way that God works is that he meets you and I even in circumstances where things aren't good. And so one of the mistakes that I see is that people chase that change. Every decision they make is on the basis of how can I change my circumstance for better? Maybe it's not about making it better. Maybe it's about the opening of our hearts and our lives before God exactly where we are. Here's the next mistake. Mistake number four. I like to call it the magic eight ball mistake. You know, God should just automatically tell me exactly what I should be doing. You know, this is an incredible and important book. It's an incredible resource and tool for our communion and communication with God. And a part of the way I'm convinced that God wants to share with each and every one of us is for us to take this book and to incorporate it into our lives. But many of the ways that people kind of treat this book is they open it up and it's, it's like a magic eight ball. They're looking for the answers to questions that the Bible isn't giving them. 
You know, in the famous passage about the Bible that has to do with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, and all those different activities. And then the purpose of all of that, Paul says, is so that the, uh, that the person might be the servant, the man of God, the woman of God might be equipped for every good work. In other words, the purpose of reading the Bible is not to get all of the answers to your questions. If you're approaching the Bible with, God, answer all of my questions, you're reading the Bible in the wrong way. Where we should be reading the Bible is, God, help me to become the woman or the man or the person who can now be wise. James tells us in his letter, so this is the brother of Jesus said, if anyone lacks wisdom, you should ask. God gives this generously. We should be going to God's word, not to give us all the answers to all of our questions. We should be going to God's word to help us to become a particular kind of people so that God might use that wisdom that we have gleaned so that we might be on the shaping and the restoration of his world. Here's the next mistake. The next mistake is what I refer to as the weariness busyness mistake. And this is very simple. The biggest mistakes that I have made in my life with decisions, I can honestly and straightforwardly tell you most of the time, those decisions were bad decisions because I was tired or I was in a hurry. And so if you have a big decision to make, in fact, even if you have lots of little decisions to make, one of the most important things for you to do is to rest, to replenish, and to remember that we cannot automatically run at full tilt all the time. And that there is a lot of things that we regret later when we make decisions, when we're tired and when we're hurried. Maybe the most spiritual thing you can do is to take a nap, to rest, to replenish, so that you're making better decisions. The Bible talks a great deal about Sabbath keeping for these types of reasons. The next mistake, this is the sixth one, the isolationist mistake. I can do this by myself. I don't need anyone else's input. I don't need anyone else's direction. This is what on Mother's Day we might refer to as the call your mother and to do so, uh, to do what she tells you to do. And uh, the, the reason that, that I can joke about that is, is that when we talk to another person, but particularly to someone who loves us, when we do that, um, I got to tell you, having that perspective is one of the biggest shots of wisdom that you can ever get. When you have that conversation, even if that person doesn't say anything, the sheer act of that conversation will give you a new perspective. And then if that's a good and loving friend or another person who cares for you, they will be able to help to shape that perspective in a way that you might be able to make a better decision. This is one of the greatest pitfalls that can fall before us um, when we try to take the burden of making decisions all on our own and we forget that God's giving us a loving community in order to be able to make those decisions. It's one of the most valuable things about church. One of the things I'm most excited about in welcoming you back is, is for us to be in that community. And I think that we individually make better decisions when we are in our Sunday school classes and we are in our small groups and when we are a part of belong communities and things like that. I think we make better and wiser decisions. 
And the final mistake I want to talk about today is this. It's the avoidance mistake. John Ortberg says that readiness is overrated when it comes to being a litmus test for a good decision. Sometimes we need to make the right decision whether we're ready or not. Earlier this week, I was reading through some of Frank Harrington's older sermons. Frank is the beloved former senior pastor of this church from decades ago. And in one of those sermons, it jumped out to me um, that he was talking about decision-making and avoidance. It was a sermon on the figure of Elijah at Mount Carmel. And he says this. He says, I remember meeting a man many, many years ago, early in the morning hours of the church. He was in trouble. His family was falling apart because of his neglect, and he was facing the consequences. And he finally shouted, I meant to do better. Doesn't that count for something? And I said, no, not really. Meaning to do something and intending to do something is far different from doing something. You know the old adage that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I frequently run into members of this church who have not been attending with any degree of regularity. We call them BPO members, burial purpose only. I like these members. They like me. We enjoy becoming reacquainted with one another. Somehow they just drift away. Almost invariably, they feel compelled to bring it up. And more often than not, something goes like this. They say, hey, pastor, I've been meaning to go to church. Now, friends, meaning to be in church and being in church are two different things. Don't ever confuse the two as being synonymous. They're not. It's like saying to your wife, I've been meaning to be married to you. That's not the same thing as being married to her. I want to put up all seven of these decision-making mistakes. And all this is meant to be suggestive as you think about the decision-making that you need to be doing, the wise freedom stewardship that God has entrusted to you within his will. Is there some kind of change that you need to make in your decision-making? Listen, as I close out this message, there's fellow pastors in the area, Andy Stanley and his father, Charles Stanley, And Andy tells the story at the beginning of his book on decision-making. He tells tells of a time of how over and over again his father would drive him crazy. And the reason that his father would drive him crazy is that when Andy would come to him with a major decision and would ask for his advice, he would follow up that uh, question with more questions. And eventually it all boiled down to um, what do you think the wise thing to do is? And he would push him and he would say, Dad, like, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're not telling me what you think. And, and his father would say, you know, I'm not always going to be here. And he's like, yeah, but you're here right now. And he's like, yes, and the reason that I'm here right now is to help you to become a wise person. What do you think the wise thing is to do? You know, when I think about that father-son relationship, I think it mirrors a great deal about the relationship of our Heavenly Father to each and every one of us. That it's not just about compliance and directing us and that there's this tiny little thing that's called his will out there that you better not deviate from. No, I think God has given us an incredible wide berth within his moral will to not only obey him, but to be able to share in the freedom and the joy and the love of what it means to bear his image. 
And so I hope you've had kind of the watershed moment that I had in thinking about God's will differently. And I hope that today helps you to make better decisions. Let's pray. Thank you, O oh God, for the incredible day that this is and how we get to dip our toes into the deep pool or the vast ocean of your sacred wisdom. Thank you, God, that all of our questions are followed up with your questions. And that often when we come to you and say, what do you think we ought to do? You often answer that with a question and say, what do you think you ought to do? Thank you that we are never in jeopardy of being outside of your sovereign will. Help us to make sure that we are staying within your moral will. Help us to love you and then to live within the freedom that you've entrusted to us. Take us back to the beginning, God, and for us to reclaim the freedom and the image and the dominion that you've entrusted to us. And most of all, help us to become wise, mature people who reflect your goodness with better decisions each and every day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.